Welcome to the Herpetile Podcast. My name is Nash and I love herpetology. This podcast explores all things to do with reptiles and amphibians. I hope you like it. Um, welcome to the show. My name's Nash. My guest today is Russell Grant. Russell lives in Victoria and breeds green tree pythons. Today we're going to talk about why Russell breeds snakes and how he got into it. Welcome to my show, Russell. My first question is, when Hi. did you first become interested in snakes? Oh, when I was um, about the same age as you, actually, probably about eight, nine or ten. Um, I, uh, I remember I moved to research with my parents, which is a suburb, an outer suburb of Melbourne out in the bush, and, um, and uh, there was lots of, um, yeah, lots of native wildlife around. I became particularly interested in collecting snakes, much to my mother and father's horror. Yeah, and um, I used to bring them home, and um, I caught a, my first my first um, catch was a, a clutch of baby brown snakes, and took them home and put them in a big tea chest in the backyard. Wow! And then I caught a um, then I caught a copperhead, um, and I remember that was measured up at about nearly four feet long, and the ranger came and collected that. I don't know what they did with it. I think they took it to the zoo. Um, but from then on, my father found me a um, uh, found me a fellow that could supply me. Uh, non-venomous snakes, colubrids, um, green tree snakes to be precise. And um, I remember they were about $4 each. Oh, wow. That's pretty cheap. And I used to go and um, catch them, uh, catch them um, food. I used to catch them little skinks and frogs and feed them the skinks and frogs. And um, they usually last about two or three years before they passed away. And I think looking back on it now, it was just parasite load. They just had got too many parasites in them being kept in a um, fish tank indoors with a light globe up one end. And don't, um, now they don't really recommend feeding wild-caught animals to come? Yes, yeah. e- exactly right. They're, they're natural prey. We prefer to feed them um, things like, well, green tree snakes, they often feed them fish and they try and get them to feed on um, pinky mice and things like that. Um, yes, because of the, the passing on of the parasites, when you're feeding one reptile to another reptile, often th- that wild reptile will be full of um uh, all types of worms and things like that that pass on to the other animal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feed my um, python a um, frozen thawed rat, and she does well on that. Oh, of course. What what type of python do you have, Nash? Um, a children's python. Oh, lovely. Well done. Excellent. And and do you know what type of children's python it is? Um, no special genes. Just a normal. Just a standard children's python. Oh, very yeah. good. We're looking um, to get some Darwin carpet pythons, though. Oh, they're nice, yes, yes. I've got some of those in the um, albino form. Yeah. Which are very pretty, and, they're yeah, they're a good, easy snake to keep too. Yeah, so um, do you know what made you start breeding snakes? Yes. Um, well, when, when, I was, um, when I was young, like your age, about 10, 10 12, 13, 14, there wasn't any um, wildlife laws around then. You could just go out in the bush and um, catch a snake and, and bring it home and, and keep it in captivity. But then in around about the mid-1970s to late 1970s, they passed laws. Um, reading, you, had, you couldn't go out and take them from the wild, just take them from the wild. You had to get a licence to keep them. Yeah. So that forced us all to start, well, we better start breeding them in captivity because it's illegal to go and collect them now. So that started the captive breeding movement. Yeah. And um, and then in about, I think it was 1988, I went and met a fellow named Brian Barnett and um, he used to breed lots and lots of pythons and I saw his collection and I was, I was um, absolutely gobsmacked. I couldn't believe how many 
snakes he had and how good he was at keeping them and breeding them. And I thought I'd like to do that one day and just kept down that path. So you uh, did? Yes, I did, yeah, yeah. And then um, just I just kept the things that I liked, uh, mainly the carpet python gene group, the um, all the genuses of carpet pythons, of the types, I mean, and, um, and then green pythons, ultimately green pythons. So what was your first breeding pair? Because... My first pair that I bred were um, water pythons and Darwin carpet pythons. Yeah, because my guess was it would be green tree pythons, but... No, no, I waited a long time to get those because we weren't legally allowed to keep them in Victoria for a long, long time. Um, I think it was um, in the late 1990s, the laws actually changed where we could, we could get access to green tree pythons from that point. Is that because they weren't in Victoria? Yes, yes, they were trying. The Queensland government wasn't releasing any because they only found in Queensland, obviously, and uh, and New South Wales they 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 didn't let hardly anyone keep any snakes. So they had a um, eventually they had an amnesty, and and people could then apply for a license and and keep snakes. And they had a lot of snakes that were being illegally kept underground, you might say. And, and those people were then allowed to declare their snakes and put them on licence. So there was quite a few people in New South Wales keeping green tree pythons at the time. I've heard yeah. that uh, people try to smuggle snakes in, like, baby ones in toilet paper rolls and stuff. Yes, yes, I've heard of that too. Yeah, there has been, there has been quite a lot of smuggling going on. A lot of people have been caught smuggling. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of, a, that's sort of a, a, another sideline that the government tries to keep a handle on. Um, but it's 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 a bit like that. Yeah, wildlife trafficking is a bit of a, a bit of a, a social issue, like drug trafficking, really. Yeah. And people want to keep these beautiful things, and you can't just let them travel around the world willy nilly because um, they do cause problems, like the like the cane toad, for instance, or the big pythons um, around Florida in the USA yeah. that got out into the Everglades. Burmese pythons in the Everglades. That's right. That's right. That's a, that's a big um, yeah. That's a big problem with the environmental issue. Um, and we have our own ones in Australia, so the government tries to limit that, and probably quite wisely too. Yeah. Because um, we don't want any more species of um, uh, uh, animals that can cause. I don't think I don't think a boa constrictor or a Burmese python would cause a lot of damage in Victoria, but it might in Queensland if they got out. Mm-hmm. And mm. they get pretty big, so they could eat yeah. kangaroos. Oh yes, exactly. Yeah, they'll compete with other native wildlife like scrub pythons and things, and um, possibly spread viruses and diseases. Yeah. So um, yes, yeah, so I waited a long time before I got actually got my first green tree pythons. I didn't get my first green tree pythons till two thousand and six, and and the reason for that is because initially we didn't know what type of green pythons they were, where they were from, and I'm what you call a um, locality keeper. Um, I like to know when I've got a snake that it comes from a certain region. Yeah. Um, I don't like. Um, I'm not the sort of keeper that likes crossing, say, diamond pythons with um, Darwin carpets. Oh, uh, yeah. I went to an expo and there were – I asked this guy what his carpet pythons were and he said a mix of everything and I found that weird. Yeah, yeah. You can do that. You can do it, of course, and they're not going to be re-released back into the wild, but it's not my thing. I just don't, just don't do that. Um, but it, 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 in saying that, it, some of the green tree pythons they produce overseas and in Australia now – they're absolutely magnificent with all their colours, the, the, the crosses of the Biaks and the Aroos and all the different types of mainland New Guinea ones. They cross them and, and get absolutely incredible colours. I call them kaleidoscope pythons, all the patterns you see them. Yeah, they're, they're getting like really crazy um, genes. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. And there's, and there's a lot to learn. So I've, 
I only um, I've, I only keep the Australian green pythons, and I've got another type of um, uh, uh, an unknown one. I think it's a, a sarong type, a New Guinea type with a bit of blue in it. But um, the, the the main one that I keep is the main one that I breed is the pure Australian one with the white spots down its back. Are they your favourite species? Yes, they would be. Yes, definitely. Yes, hand hand over. Yeah, because they're just so specialised and um, um, and 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 there's so much to learn. There's still a lot to learn now, even after I've been doing it for so many years. I, I suppose my second favourite, or way up there with green tree pythons, is diamond pythons. I mainly I mainly did my apprenticeship keeping and breeding pythons with the diamonds because um, yeah. they're a little bit more specialised than your average carpet python. So I did a lot of research. Back in the early 1990s, it was quite hard to keep them indoors in captivity um, and have them breed successfully. So um, that was that was sort of like a little challenge to me, and they're absolutely gorgeous-looking pythons. So I started with a collection of um, diamond pythons in the, and started breeding those in the mid-90s until um, the mid-2000s when I got into green pythons. Is um, your breeding a business? Yes, yes, I do. I do actually make money out of selling the. Um, I make a profit out of selling the the pythons, and yeah. and I declare the income. So, in other words, I, I declare it as an as an income and pay tax on it. So, how long do you think um, it took you to like get eating business known? Um, well, I'm a bit. I'm, I'm a sort of a, a sort of a little home business. It's a little home hobby business. I'm not ser a serious business. Yeah. Um, I obviously don't employ any staff or anything like that, and I've and I've worked in another job all my life, really. So um, the, the the snakes are always a sideline. But if you do make a profit, you have to really run it as a business. Yeah. I might as well, if I'm going to make a profit out of it and make some money out of it, I might as well do it as a business. Then I can claim. If you, you know, were, when you're paying electricity, you can claim a deduction against your profit. Yeah. If you were having it as a full time job, that you'd have to have a lot of snakes. Yes, yes, you would, and you'd have to have some really. Well, you'd have to have some good lines, some specialist lines. I don't think you could, you could make a living and 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 pay a house off and support a family breeding childrens and carpet pythons. Yeah, unless they were, unless you had something that was really, really special and worth a lot of money. Yeah, um, eight hundreds. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and and. And I normally sell like little baby green tree pythons. I normally sell them for around eight hundred dollars each, maybe a thousand dollars each. Yeah, I saw an expo ones. Yeah, that's right. And then the, the nice white striped ones. They're generally they're generally about two thousand dollars each for the really nice striped ones, knowing the sex and all that stuff, unmarked and. Yeah, they're. Yeah. Sorry. Um. Do you have like? So you said you had an, um another job. What is that? Oh. Well, I used to. I used to run. I don't do it anymore. But I used to run a um, tie service. I used to work with cars. Oh yeah. So yeah, so it was a good contrast to come to work with cars all day and metal and concrete and and um, working on cars all day and then come home to a little rainforest in one of my rooms in my house. Yeah. <laughs> work with nature all of a sudden. What I wouldn't have liked to do was get a job working at a zoo or a wildlife park. Yeah. Because then I then I'd have a, a bit of an overdose of animals. You see, there wouldn't be that good contrast. Because mm -hmm. then you'd never get like any time away. Yeah, it'd be just animals, 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 twenty four hours a day. Yeah, so it was a nice contrast to, to running a, um, a, a, a in the motor car industry. I worked in that for for thirty six years. Um, that was a good contrast and doing the wildlife at home. How um, often do you think you'd get new bloodlines? I haven't had new bloodlines since two thousand and seven. 
So what I've done, I, I, I purchased a group in 2006 and then a second group in 2007 from separate bloodlines. And you've been um, just slowly crossing them over? Yes. I, I Well, first thing, to, the first challenge was raising them up and then getting them to breeding size and then breeding them. And then, yes, and then what I did, I crossed the two, the two lines together and then I've been hand-picking the, the best-looking ones, the ones that I consider to be the best-looking ones, and then breeding those back together again. Do you... Um, Line breeding, they call that, yes. So does that mean you'd need to, like, get new bloodlines soon, or how long do you think you can go? You can you can keep doing that till you get a bad gene rear its head. <laughs> yeah. So once you once the first thing that normally drops off is the um the reproductive fitness of the animal so in other words you'll get very poor poor clutch sizes um and then irregular sizes of eggs and then maybe possibly you'll have um kinks, uh, kinks and things like that yeah deformed babies and part of that deformity could also be an albino so that's a deformity too where you get the the, the um the colorations all wrong and that's what they do. That's what they do in overseas, and that's why they have all those incredible-looking green pythons. It's from line breeding, and they um, actually um, breed breed genetically related animals. Yeah, yeah. and it, and it does work. It, if 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 you've got good genetics, if the genes are good, and there's nothing bad in there, um, you can keep doing it. So now, do you only work with um, green pythons, or? Yes, that's that's the main one I breed now. Yes, I very rarely breed. I've got a pair of albino Darwins and some nice old proserpine carpets and some black and white gelatin jungles and things like that. Um, bits and favourites that I kept that I couldn't sell. <laughs> um, yeah, for favourite old pets. I've got a, a my female water python, still the first snake I bought on um, licence. It's not the first snake I ever had, but I bought her in 1989 as a baby. How old? Um, so she's just over 30 years old now. Wow. So she's a nice old girl that I've had for many years. Um, I don't breed her anymore, but um, she's just a pet now. Yeah. So they're sort of your, your favorite. They, they become your pet, your favorites, and they become pets, sort of thing. Do you um, have any like reptile businesses that you get you like to get your supplies from? Yes, I do. I deal with the. Um, I've dealt with the herb shop for many years, um, Brian, because he is very, very knowledgeable man on 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 anything to do with reptiles. Um, and he and he ran a shop. He actually started up a shop and um, was an excellent place to get supplies. And then and then after that, with um, green pythons, it's often I've, I've I've learned how to do a lot of um, home handyman work. I can build my own cages and, um, and and do all that sort of stuff. So I can I can set things up to suit myself. So I built I built them a dedicated green python room. So very heavy, because I live in Victoria, quite a, it's a cool temperate climate. I had to insulate it very heavily. Yeah. Um, so they're doing a lot better here. I moved we moved um, location a couple of years ago, and this this room I've set up as a dedicated um, green tree python room, basically. Whereas before the last place I was at, um, that was more set up towards diamond pythons. So it was sort of on the southwest corner of the house where it was cooler, didn't get the, any of the hot summer sun. It was a bit cool, a bit darker, but that's not so good for keeping green pythons. <laughs> so now that I've moved house and set up a dedicated room, the snakes are doing a lot better and looking a lot better. The, yeah. the Australian green python's fairly unique in the fact that um, they 
alter their pattern and colour to suit the environment. Yeah, so... They're all yellow as babies. Then how, how do you heat them? Because if they're in a warmer place, do you need to heat them a lot or...? Yes, not a lot, no, because the room's so well insulated. So I have, um, I had, I'd probably have adult cages in there. I think I've got about 20 adult cages in there. Mm -hmm. And just the heat from those cages is enough to heat the background temperature in the room. So at this time of year, overnight, the temperature drops to about 22 to 24 degrees overnight. That's pretty good. Hmm, so it holds a nice, even tropical type temperature. And also holds humidity very well. The room is quite um, humid when you walk in there and um, you can tell that it's almost like getting off the plane. You've landed in Darwin or Cairns and it's like, it's like really nice, nice and heavy air, heavy, humid air. So I, just put, um, I love it. I, I love it. Mm. I just put a light in there to heat it. Do you? Oh, with, your, with your python? Yes, that's right. I use, because the, the tree pythons tend to coil on things like that. Mm -hmm. I use what's called um, radiant heat panels. It's like a, a, a just a little square ceramic radiator thing that just screws into the roof of the cage. Because you wouldn't want them coiling around a light. No, because they would do that. They would when the thermostat's out. When the thermostat turns the light off, um, they could they get up there and coil around the light globe, and then the thermostat turns turns on again. And if the snake's asleep, it'll just the light globe just gets hotter and hotter till the snake burns. Yeah, and snakes burn themselves easily because. They don't feel it until it's too late because of their scales. So. Yeah, they're not used to it. Um, it's, uh, they should be heated slowly and gradually. And I, um, I often give my green pythons time outdoors when the weather's right, um, let them have a crawl in the trees in the backyard or in the grass and yeah. gives them a bit of exercise, a bit of UV, a bit of sunlight. Yeah. And, and also I can observe them in, in the, um, the way they react to the infrared radiation, the he heating their skin. I have a little temp gun. I take a little infrared temp gun with me to tell what their skin temperature is. And, and I know they're quite happy to handle a gentle heat up to about 36 degrees. And after that, then they react, even if they're quietly sheltered somewhere. When, once their blood temp, body temp gets to about 36, then they react. And they normally move to the ground straight away and get under leaf litter. Yeah, I've heard some people saying that um, green tree pythons have hard temperaments. Do you agree with that? Hard temperaments? Like, oh, you mean like aggressive? Like, yeah, sort of. No, then... quite the opposite. Quite the op oh, The ones I keep, all the ones I keep are handleable any time of the day, but never at night. I'd never, I'd never dare put my hand in the cage at night time when they're, when they're interested in ambushing their prey. Um, but in the daytime, no, you, you can pick them out of the cage and handle them. They're very, very, very placid and very tolerant of, of handling. And I recommend to people that buy them off me that they do handle them on a reasonably regular basis because um, not like walking your dog every day, but I like to handle mine after each feed. So that I give them a feed and then I wait four or five days for them to digest most of the feed. And then I like to make sure I handle that snake, even if only for five or ten minutes. Because, yeah, just to keep them used to it. Yeah, well, keep them not used to handling, but to keep them because they—they're even even if I don't handle them, they're still not aggressive. They're just not a, the Australian green python is not aggressive. It's not like the Biak green python. And you talked about um, not putting your hand in there at night. Are they nocturnal? Yes, they hunt their prey at night. Yeah. And the unique thing about the green tree python over your um, children's python is that the green tree pythons are solely ambush predator. Oh, yeah. so they 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 always catch um, live prey in the wild. Because um, I'm pretty sure in the wild a children's python would um, eat bats, so it would wait mm. up 
at a high place. That's, yes, that's a children's cry from doing ambush predatoring. Yeah. And they also do the other type of um, predation, which is called foraging. Yeah. So if, if the children's python's crawling up, the, say, the um, the rocky escarpment to, to get into ambush position to catch some bats that night, some micro bats, mm -hmm. on its way up, if it comes across a dead lizard, it'll eat that too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, that's called foraging. They're foraging for food as well as ambushing it, yeah. Yeah. Are they python solely ambush, so we tend to and – it, and it's also – um, not an active python, so it doesn't go foraging looking for food. It just climbs into the canopy in the daytime and then comes down each night. So they're generally just sitting on their perch? Yes, that's why I exercise them. Because in Mother Nature, I can't build a cage that's as big as, as, big as um, a, a tree in the rainforest. Yeah. Um, so it's like I'm keeping, um, for example, a good example is a dog. You, you've got a little unit or a flat and you keep your dog in the little backyard. So it's important that you exercise your dog every day. Is there anything special about green tree pythons that you want people to know? Um, yeah, well, probably that exercise thing is one. Um, the food quality is another important thing. So just, just handling a green python once or twice a month is good as long as mm -hmm. um, on the other side of that coin, the, 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 the detriment, the bad side of handling a green python is that you, um, if you're too rough, or the snake is extremely stressed out about it. In other words, the, the BIAC form, the, the northern form of green python, some of those types are so stressed out by human contact, handling them once a week or once a month is, is also bad for their health because you're stressing them too much. Yeah, because you don't want to handle them too much. No, it? you don't want to stress them. You can handle them if they're not stressed, but don't stress them. So the handling, what the handling does, it gives them a bit of a bit of muscle movement, a bit of um, a bit of exercise. Um, so they they they're shockingly good at, at conserving energy. They do not want to waste any energy because they don't get a lot of tucker in the rainforest and they don't grow very big. So they live on a very meagre rations. So they will not waste any energy and they'll do it to the detriment of their health. What are the um, signs that it's being overhandled or stressed? Well, you, most of them will display it. Most of them, like, they'll, they'll, they'll bite you um, or they'll fly around or try and just jump off your hands onto the ground. Mm -hmm. They're obvious. They're obvious signals. Yeah. Other ones might, other ones more, more um, introverted ones might just, just stop feeding or something like that. They might not eat. Um, they might just sit in one cold corner of the cage underneath the um, newspaper um, or whatever substrate you've got in the enclosure. So, yeah, so it's important to be able to read the animal. You must be able to read the animal, understand what it's – sort of have a bit more understanding of what the animal's trying – sort of telling you. On um, breeding, how long is the pregnancy pe period or clutch size for them? Well, usually um, you can see when, they, when the female ovulates, that's normally quite obvious. She has a huge swelling in her, in her um, stomach region. So it's like she's eating a big rat, yeah. and then and then that goes usually usually dissipates. It, it sort of it ha hangs in mid body for about twenty four hours, two days maybe, and then it dissipates down the, to the through the snake through the back end of the female. So after that ovulation, she normally she'll normally have a, a, a pre lay sloth about a month after that, and a then shed. lay the eggs about three weeks after that sloth. Yeah, and a sloth is a shed, right? Correct, yes. She'll have it, yeah, shed. She'll do a pre-lay shed, yeah. How many eggs would that be? Oh, the, the Australian green python lays fairly large eggs. 
So she normally lays a good-sized female of around a kilo. should lay about a dozen eggs, a dozen to 16 eggs. Okay. And the other New Guinea-type ones, they normally lay, especially the northern ones, lay smaller eggs. So on the same size female, you might get 18 to 20 eggs, but the eggs are actually smaller. The so, clutch mass is usually about the same, though. Usually about 30% of the body weight of the girl. So the, the mass, of, the total mass of the eggs is usually... Do you, um, do you normally sell all the... Um, animals at a wherever you're selling them, or yes, you... over the over the over the year, yeah. I don't breed that many. Um, usually, I'd have two, maybe sometimes three clutches. In 2018, when I moved house, I only got one clutch of 12 eggs, um, and I think I hatched out 10 of those. So that was a, that was a slow year. So only only 10 babies. Um, Do you think that was because that they were stressed for moving house? Correct. Yes, yeah, spot on, Nash. That's exactly right. Till I got them settled in again. Yeah. And then and then last season, uh, the 2019 season, I actually got um, three clutches of eggs, two clutches of Aussies, and one clutch of um, sarong types. But I didn't have much success hatching the sarong types. I only managed to hatch out four of those. How many do you have that you do bleed? Uh, breeding pairs. Yeah. You mean? I'd have, I'd have. Um, well, they're always sort of cycling. I'm bringing on new, new blood, and new colours and patterns. But um, normally about, I'd say about eight pairs, eight to ten pairs. Right now. Yes, right now. Yeah, yeah. But not all, not all breeding size. Yeah. But breeding size pairs at the moment because I've I've held some back to increase the um to increase the numbers a little bit and and change over the the um. The older girls. I'm sort of retiring the older females because it takes a bit out of them breeding. Yeah, but it, it's okay if you do it. If you do it once every uh, three years, three seasons, two or three seasons, that's all right. Some people like to do it every season, pump them out every season. How um how old like do you wait for them to be before you send them out? Um, you mean breeding them? How old are they before they breed? No, before you. Like. Well, I've got girls there. I've, I'm still breeding one of the females from um, 2006, one of my originals. Um, so she's yeah, she's um, 14 years old. So um, the babies, how old do you get them before you give them to someone? Oh, what I do with the babies, I, I never sell a baby that's not well established. Yeah. Um, so they hatch out of the egg and then I normally wait um, around two weeks for them to do their first shed. And then about a week after that, I'll start what we call feeding trials. So I've got to treat, teach those little babies to eat um, uh, captive bred mice. So on pinky mice, I'm, I'm teaching them to eat pinky mice, and I use different scents and um, and tricks and things like that to to get them to eat, to get them in feeding mode. And then after they after the after about a month after their um, post hatching shed. If they haven't fed them, depending on their weight and how they're looking, then I, I might assist feed them, which basically means forcing food down their throat. What you do is you put the little tiny mouse, you force it into the mouth of the snake and the teeth of the snake, the recurved teeth hang onto the mouse and you just gently push, put it back in this little cage and leave it and then come back in the morning and hopefully it couldn't get it out of its mouth and it ate it. And usually if you do that two or three times, they'll start feeding fine then. They're starting to learn. They're starting to wake up and, and, and understand that, that mice can be a food item because they don't generally recognise it in, in captivity as a food item. So uh, once, they've, once they've had at least um, eight to ten feeds and a few sheds and, um, and they're defecating well, pooing properly, 
um, and everything seems healthy, then I'll let them go, which is usually um, usually about oh, three months of age, roughly. So the opposite to that question, how old do you wait for them to breed? Okay, when the, when you're um, breeding, you can you can have a go with the males at about two and a half years, but we generally like the females to be. I like them to be over six hundred grams and, and and three over three, or at three and a half years of age. So over three years, over three years old. So you get a bigger clutch. No, so that the, the females um, in fit, fine form, and you're not breeding a too young, too young, too light. Um, most of the time, what would happen though, if, if that was the case, if I introduced a male, so I introduced a male to a two and a half year old female, a good a good um, breeding male. Generally, what would happen? She just wouldn't breed. There would be no eggs. Yeah. But you don't want to take the risk of something going wrong because it's a big, it's a huge effort for the female to lay a clutch of eggs. A really big yeah. effort. Um, that's why. So you want her in prime condition. And that's also why some people are against hybrid snakes because sometimes the hybridizing just doesn't work and it's all um, stillborn. Yes. Yes, yes, you know, yeah, that's that. Um, that's a good indication that you shouldn't try that one again. Yeah, because it's a lot of work for the female. Mm. A huge amount of work for the female, yeah. In green pythons, it's roughly about 30% of their body weight. She puts into a clutch of eggs. And then they're really, like, deflated looking after and stuff. When they, when they hatch, yeah, they're almost, they're sort of... Um, got their, their they're shelled up they've got their um their calcium shell on them but it's it's almost a bit clear it's a bit translucent and yeah. and soft then and then then it hardens up over the next 24 hours and gets um a nice um a, a nice bright white color and they fill out and they become um quite not nice and oblong and and white and then um before they hatch the the few weeks before they hatch they start caving in sinking in until the day before the hatch, you think that you could hardly imagine there'd be any live animal in there because they're so sunken and caving in, and then a little head pops out, little head splits out. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was just thinking, would you give a green tree python a hide? Because they're arboreal. But... Mm, you give them a hide? No, generally, no. I make the cage, I try and make the cage... Um, feel like it's hiding in the rainforest. So I put in, I put in, um, I make the, my adult cages out of nylon panel, which is like um, the nylon cutting board you use in the kitchen. So I buy a panel of that, which you can, you can get it in a uh, 2400 by 1200 sheet, and it's 15 mil thick. And I build a cage out of that black panel, and then I use branches in there, and I use um, PVC the tubing, 15 mil generally is the one that goes up top, and 20 mil down lower. So thinner, thinner tubing up top. And I rough that up with sandpaper, burn it with a a, a, um, a little oxy torch thing, and then twist it and shape it outside because it lets off some toxic fumes. And then and then it becomes like a, a piece of um, tree, so it's got a rough texture and all shaped. And I can cut in um, cut in things like woodworm in it and stuff, so it looks like a natural branch, and it feels like a natural branch to them. So you like um, a really realistic feeling yes. today. And then so it's all it's basically all plastic. Pretty much the whole cage is plastic, but it, it's sort of it's got a more realistic look and feel. And I fill it up with plastic plants too. And then because it's a black enclosure with a glass front, quite dark, I don't want it to be like a cave. So on the um, on the um, heat panel side, I have the heat panel at one, one side of the enclosure. And on that side, I put a little LED light tube, which comes on and it, it sort of creates a photo period. 
So I've got I've got at this time of year I'd have a 12 12 photo period like um, Lockhart River where they come from. So 12 hours night, 12 hours day. Mm-hmm. But the one that that's the lighting in the room, and then the lighting in the enclosure is a bit less. But make it sort of like a twilight sunrise twilight thing, you know. Can you think of um, a snake you've ever had that was your absolute favourite? Like maybe the first you ever had, or? Uh, no, I can't actually. I think I think my favourite ones are those white striped green poppins that I've got now. <laughs> Um, but I've had some, yeah, I mean, I used to love the diamond pythons. As a, as a species, I suppose the diamonds are up there with the green tree pythons for me. I did so, so much success with them, but not an actual snake. I, uh, but then again, I'm attached to that, um, I'm attached to the proserpine carpet I've got, um, the, um, the water python, my first one on permit, um, things like that. But the other, the other snakes that I had off permit have all passed away now. How would you put... Um a water python's enclosure together i was wondering well i make that of um the one that i've got my adult female in that's um that's about one what was it 1.3 1.4 meters long by um it's about i think 750 deep and about 700 high and with the heating up one side of it so it's quite a long deep enclosure and it has a gla- a plastic floor and then melamine sides so it's just a, a large rectangle box do they like um, a high water temperature? Because it would be hard for a reptile to live in a cold water temperature. Water temperature? No, it's not. It's um, the water python. You mean? Yeah. No, no. That that just has a normal water bowl. The water python name that that's just a um, that's just a white man name. We we gave it. I think that I think for the Aboriginals, it's part of the rainbow serpent um, mythology because it has that rainbow sheen in the side of it. But the water python, when when um, the white man, like us, were travelling around up in Darwin and, and the wet season came, they were everywhere, especially up in um, uh, Kakadu and places like that and the floodplains. They'd come out of the cracks in the soil and they'd be everywhere and they'd be gorging themselves on all the magpie geese that were breeding. <laughs> so when when the, when the they became obvious to the white man, it was always when there was a lot of water around and they were hanging around the water, so they just called them water python. But other than that, they're basically the same to keep as your... Um, is your carpet python or children's python? I mean, so I think that. Of- you don't need hot water and you don't need a lot of water. They don't spend time in the water. Um, they pretty much use the cage like a carpet python. Mm, well, because I bet a lot of people would get confused about that. Yeah, they would because of the name, the common name. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. They um, they they just like a, a nice, they, a good size water bowl, but they shouldn't mind. Mine never, ever, ever has lied, actually lay in the water bowl permanently. I think yeah. Mother Nature just forces that on them in the wet season up there when the floodplains, they just, they're just covered in water. This snake, the, the water python is just so adaptable, it just gets on with the job. Is that one just a pet? Yes, or? that's just a pet now. I don't breed her anymore. I used to breed her. She was a very good, very good breeder um, and, and laid quite a few good clutches of eggs and and her and the, the male that I used were very placid. Water pythons are renowned for being very aggressive. Um, and these, these two were quite placid. So I did it, bred, a lot, bred them a lot. And the babies turned out to be quite placid too. So they were like the parents. Do you have that male? No, he's gone now. No, he died a few years ago. Exactly. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, that's the tra- When you keep a lot of, lot of live animals, you're going to have some dead ones now and then. 
Um, it's hard though, yeah, but anyway. How many of your um, reptiles are just pets? Um, I would have, I think there's a water python, um, the black and white, probably about six, I think, six of them. Mm, yes, yeah, so I've got a, some jungle carpets, um, a water python, um, proserpine carpet or Whitsunday Peninsula carpet python, and some Darwin carpet pythons. I used, to, I used to keep the children's pythons. I used to have the maculosis, the spotted pythons, um, olive pythons and scrub pythons. And so I had to, I had to collect the mania bug years ago. Do you um, sell any of the other um, ones that you breed on your um, business for the green tree pythons or is that solely? No, I don't bother breeding the other ones anymore, Nash. Actually, the other day I gave away my old um, Cape York carpet python. I had a Cape York carpet python there that was over 20 years old and um, I had a lady looking for one. She was actually after a Cape York carpet python and so I gave it to her. Yeah, so went to went to a good home, basically retired to a good home. Do you um, keep any other animals? Uh, just the mice I used for feeding and we have a, and we have a pet cat. <laughs> So yeah, I, we used to live in the um, Dandenong Ranges, and um, and and there was a lot of uh, uh, wild cats or feral cats, you might say. That, and I ended up trapping a kitten one day. So we ended up, my wife ended up taming it and became a pet. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that's the uh, yeah. So that's basically just the snakes. Now we used to have dog. Used to have Newfoundlands. Keep Newfoundlands and um, little bull terriers and things. Um, so no gecko? No, I used to have, um, I used to keep the inland bearded dragons and the spiny tail monitors and green tree frogs as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we used to have a few few other different types of reptiles, yeah. So, like, um, herpetology mostly? Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. Mostly, yeah, mostly scaly critters, yes. Yes, herpetology, exactly right. Is that what you'd like to do, Nash, when you um, finish school? Do some um, do a science yeah. degree? Yeah, that's a good idea. That's something. That's something good to strive towards. Because it's yeah. people like that, the the scientists that help um, people like me. Uh, that's where I get a lot of. Uh, that's where I get a lot of information from. Obviously, other keepers. When I first got green pythons, I had to rely on what I read from people that kept green pythons in the United States and, and Europe. Um, yeah. But their, their green pythons are a bit different to ours. So a lot of their writing, like like you said, like you asked me earlier on in the interview, uh, aren't they aggressive? And and well, the types, some of the types they keep in America are very aggressive. The the Biak types, known for being a nasty type of um, green python. So it's important, I think. I think the biggest mistake we all make with green pythons <coughs> is to pull them all put them all in the one group. Yeah, so you should so do this with a green python, and that's that's um, that doesn't apply. Usually, doesn't apply to all of them. So I usually specify whenever I'm telling people about green pythons that I'm referring to my experience with Australian green pythons. Because I don't hear of many snakes that um, like living with other ones. No, no, I, I, I definitely keep them in 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 their individual enclosures um, because they can, they will. Um, maybe not kill each other, but they'll definitely bite each other at night time if one moves. Because if you've got a if you've got a room full of enclosures and, and you walk in with some um, thawed out mice, for example, so the, the smell permeates through the whole room, and all of a sudden it's night time and they can smell the mouse, and 
as I, I know as I walk through the room at nighttime feeding, um, I can hear next to my face, I can hear bang on the glass when they, they, they hit the glass, trying to bite me on the head. So if there was another snake in the cage and it saw that one move and it can smell a mouse, it'll just bite it. They have yeah. to strike first and, and worry about what they've hit later because it's an ambush thing. So they're waiting on something to run along, some little marsupial or mouse to run along the forest floor and they'll grab it. Do you have a feeding day? Or no, I generally um, feed more through the, the, the summer months. In other words, imitate the wet season, the biological rush of the wet season. I feed more. I feed The feeding intensity goes up and, and thus the exercise and movement. And then it's starting to slow down now. Um, I keep them a bit differently to the, the fellas in the States and things because um, the, the Australian green python comes from a, a, an environment that has a really well-defined wet and dry season. So there's, not, yeah, so there's not some of the other New Guinea ones just are in a almost permanent tropical um, rain season. Do you know um, what size rats? What size? What's that? Sorry, Nash? Um, rodents? Oh, mainly adult mice um, or small rats. Uh, rats up to, say, 80 grams, no problem, 80, maybe even 100 grams for a big one. Yeah, so yeah. That, 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 but generally, generally mice. Um, and then, yes, if 50 to 80 gram rats when I can get them. A lot of people yeah. like growing their rats up a bit further, but um, yeah, sometimes I can yeah. feed them rats as well. Oh, yeah, so you feed them the rats you breed? I don't breed rats at home. I only breed mice at home. Yeah. So, and I like, to, I like to feed fresh killed a lot because um, in the wild that's what they eat. They kill their own prey. So um, it's um, especially the juveniles, mainly, mainly with the juveniles, I, or I do not feed frozen thawed prey to a juvenile green python ever. Always, always fresh killed. Um, we might start wrapping it up Certainly, now. Yes. Um, thanks for having us on your pod on the on my um, podcast. No, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing all your knowledge with us. It was great to have you. Um, and thank you, Nash. It was good to be on, mate. Thanks for listening to the Herbert Hour podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the latest episodes. Happy herping!